Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. G'day Space Junkies! Welcome back to the Space Junk Podcast, the only podcast on the internet where existential angst is just as cool as rockets. My name is Annie Handmer and my PhD thesis remains as wild a ride as ever. And I wanted to put a call out that if you are a person who has had involvement with the Pilot Antarctic Telescope Project or the Space Environment Research Centre and you haven't already been hassled by me for research purposes, please do get in contact. My email is thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. And if you happen to know anything about picture book publishing, I can reveal that my magnum opus, the charming nihilist children's story, Pops Bought a Boat, is now complete and illustrated and received rave reviews from my two-year-old nephew when I sent the video of me reading it. I'm not saying it's the next Harry Potter, but it exists and that's something. And now back to space-related stuff. Today's podcast begins with a conversation over a cup of tea with Thomas Gooch, founder of the Office of Other Spaces, the Office of Planetary Observations, and the National Australian Director of the Moon Village Association. Regular listeners might remember Thomas as being the host of the Moon Village Association panel on the moon, which was called MINI, in Melbourne in February this year, which I moderated. The second half of today's podcast is the audio from the presentation Thomas gave at the conference Property Rights and Real Estate Interests in Outer Space, which was hosted online by RMIT University on the 1st of May earlier this year. The event was sponsored by the Space Industry Association of Australia, the RMIT School of Property Construction and Project Management, the Sir Lawrence Wackett Centre and YK Law, and I'd like to particularly thank Rebecca Lashinsky and Sam LeMay and the rest of the team from RMIT for putting on the, this awesome online conference, but also making this recording available for the publication that it is receiving now through the Space Junk podcast. And if you would like to watch this presentation and see the slides along with the audio, you can find this episode, including the pre-presentation cup of tea chat, on my YouTube channel. Just search the Space Junk podcast on YouTube and you should spot the logo. Because this is a recording from an online conference, the audio is a little bit crackly in the recorded section, so I suggest listening without headphones. Before we jump in, I also wanted to let you know that if you're in Australia and you know a young person in year 11 of high school who is interested in anything sciencey, techy, 
or not sciencey, tell them that applications for the National Youth Science Forum 2021 close on the 14th of June. So they need to get a wriggle on if they're going to apply. There are equity scholarships available and it looks like a whole lot of educational fun. I for one would love to attend, um, but I think I am definitely too old. The URL is nysf.edu.au. That is all from me. Enjoy the podcast. G'day everyone. Welcome back to Space Junk Podcast, the co-video edition, where today I'm speaking with the fabulous Thomas Gooch, who is coming to us from a, a country estate, I believe, somewhere in the wilds of Victoria. Correct, yes. And Thomas is a bit unusual, and we've just been discussing this, in that Thomas and I have come across each other through various space-related adventures. And yet, at the same time, both of us feel that we're not kind of your typical space junkie in the sense that, um, in the sense that many people are. And for Thomas, it's really about landscape, I suppose, and, and the environment and so on. So I will let Thomas explain this and then um, we can have a bit of a chat. But Thomas, go on, tell me, what is it about landscape? Great, Annie. Yeah, look, I think uh, everything happens in the landscape, doesn't it? Uh, politics, food growth, uh, where we live, um, everything, and how we actually relate to the landscape uh, is key to how we, you know, cut the earth, how we build our buildings, how we mine and extract, and the things that guide us on that journey towards inhabiting place uh, are really interesting. And that varies from country to country. And uh, yeah, being having a profession in landscape architecture, uh, we have expertise in how to actually build in relationship to landscape. So, so in the context of space, how we inhabit space uh, becomes really interesting because we have an opportunity to engage with landscapes in new ways and in ways perhaps we haven't in the past. And mm. I guess bringing that to the, the table as a point of discussion and expertise. How do we open up those narratives and those discussions for, for others and all, really? Absolutely. Well, Thomas and I both presented at a conference last month, I think, or maybe it was earlier this month, um, yep. for RMIT. It was an online webinar-style conference. And Thomas gave a presentation about landscape and space which is really fascinating and which I'm going to cut together after our little short discussion. So this is really to contextualize that presentation, which we will include as it was given on that day, which I think is um, a nice way of, of doing things. And I myself was talking about how space landscapes in a way are not particularly conducive to um, cooperating with human regulation. And so I was talking about the history of human exploration in Antarctica and how the Antarctic landscape is remarkably unfriendly and uncooperative with our economic models. But Thomas, yours was more of a historical jaunt through, um, I suppose, aspects of colonialism and so on. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, in a sense, that's part of the story, isn't it? Yeah. I guess it was really about how we see landscape and making the point that that does change over time and has and always will. And we're at a point where there's a lot of drive towards going back to the moon 
and agreements, commitments and mining uh, on a perhaps a linear pathway towards that happening. And how do we see those landscapes as we approach? That's, that's the point. We've got a new opportunity to revive or some older, older wisdom from Indigenous groups, uh, but also some of the new legal structures in place. Uh, we can bring that in as well. So, so the talk was really kind of covering a spectrum, I think, and offering up a, a ways forward, really. Uh, and I think encouraging people how to see and how to engage with landscape is the point. We, Annie, we talked about relationships yeah. and how in relationship to something you have a response and a listening. And we were mentioning water on the moon and not knowing everything there is to know. So how do we actually have action in that place but then allow for response and a changing attitude as we learn more? How did you get interested in taking your your background, I suppose, in landscape architecture to space? Yeah, look, uh, I'd been uh, travelling extensively for for around four years, living with no fixed address and designing cities and uh, spending a lot of time in the landscape and arrived at a point where I thought we must be able to map the earth, you know, uh, frequently and at that time actually the European Space Agency just launched the Copernicus constellation which did mean that in the coming years we which we now see we can map the earth every five days from satellite so that ability revolutionizes the way we have a relationship with landscape and nature because we can begin to quantify nature particular to human boundaries to underpin decision making so in landscape architecture and city planning it's really hard to have discussions with engineers who can easily count cars or engineering like pipes and buildings, whereas to, to count and quantify nature and to bring those indices to the table has been quite difficult. So in this new age, in the golden age of satellites, we can actually map the earth frequently, understand what's happening and respond accordingly. So it has capacity to change the way we actually relate to nature entirely. So that's one component. I guess knowing in 2015 that there were companies looking to go to the moon and primarily Elon Musk at the time and Jeff Bezos, seeing this trajectory arc, then I felt the importance of needing to bring landscape to that discussion. So uh, other than the inevitability of humans having a multi-planetary presence, how do we actually inhabit place uh, through expertise and technology is the question. Yeah. I'm sort of um, hopeful because as we were discussing earlier before we hit record on this thing, is um, whenever Thomas and I get in the same room or on the same Zoom and, and have a chat, it always goes wild places and really interesting philosophical points. But it seemed to me, and I've been a bit worried about the fact that we seem to be sort of rocketing towards this inevitable conclusion of turning up on the moon and mining it. And it doesn't matter how much you say that the technology is not there yet, which it isn't, and that, you know, economically it may never make sense, which is true. There's a sense that, that it somehow is inevitable and that we're going there no matter what. And Thomas mentioned that, um, that it, there's something about COVID and the fact that we've all had to stop and rethink what we're doing from a very basic level, like from the from our relationships and interactions with each other, 
right through to our relationship with the, the world around us and the way that it's been designed and whether it has been designed in a way that you know prevents transmission of of um of covid most particularly that i think is is very hopeful i'm i'm less concerned i suppose i think we've shown that it is possible to pause and reflect a bit and i'm hoping we can make the most of this time um while the us is thinking about what to do with moon like moon mining and australia is thinking about how to respond to think about it deeply and properly in a way we might not have been able to do if we hadn't had this period of shutdown. But maybe I'm being very Pollyanna-ish on that one. I'm not sure. What do you think, Thomas? Yeah, look, I think it's a, you make a good point and any opportunity to take stock is positive, isn't it? And reevaluate mm. uh, the trajectory. And I think what we were saying was, how do you encourage that ability uh, to, to be able to step back and ask the why? And mm. not just accept that you've made that decision way back and this is where you're going, but at any point be able to kind of feed back that question of asking the why back into that starting point and say, is it still relevant? Mm. Uh, I think in that way, what we were saying there was, how does that actually allow for innovations? How does that allow for us to keep moving forwards, not just stop it, but actually to pay, perhaps rejig it and enhance it? And I think, what you're saying there with COVID is relevant because there's so many great things which have come out of people stopping and spending more time with families and, you know, the, the technology with uh, Zoom and other platforms has, has jumped and really revolutionising the way we're going to move forwards talking to each other. So often in the letting go, there can be a little bit of trauma and a bit of a detox in some instances, which, which we suffer with. <laughs> but if we allow ourselves to move through that, then it, Often once we get through it, there's new ways. And uh, I think that's really interesting in space and what you're talking about there. Uh, how, how, to, how, to, how do we see differently and how can that help us move into space? Mm. And how do we learn to be kind to each other? I found yeah. that, um, that during this period of COVID lockdown, certainly where I am in Sydney, there's... I feel that people are being kinder and more patient with each other and with themselves, I think. And that's a really positive thing um, that I, I found kind of uplifting in a depressing sort of way. I will say I do oscillate. I mean, I have weeks where I think everything's wonderful and then, you know, I'll go through a week of, oh, my God, like crying in the shower type activities to, to sure, yeah. deal with it. But, yeah. <laughs> but everyone's experiencing their COVID journey in their own way. Sure, they are, aren't they? Yeah, no, yeah. you're right. And it's an unexpected time. And yeah, many have, many have suffered as well, which, which we need to be compassionate about. And what you're saying there, I think for me, is uh, when you're kind, I guess you are considerate of something other than yourself. And this comes back to landscape because you're not just thinking what you can extract from it, uh, but you're setting up a relationship where you're thinking of it and how, how you can help as well, you know. And I think in this way, that dialogue and that relationship comes back in because you're able to, to be sensitive uh, but still have action. Well, I think that's probably as good a place as any to leave it and give everyone the joy of your wonderful presentation which runs for about 14 minutes, I think, from memory, maybe a little less. Um, but was there anything that you wanted to suggest people do or 
or any thoughts before they launch into that? Uh, look, I think we spoke about having a voice and having non-space actors enter into the space community and that's happening and it actually enhances technology, enhances the way we can all collaborate and relate and there's a few points in the talk which I guess link up aspects that perhaps haven't been linked up and give pause for thought. So if any of them are interesting, I'd encourage people to go into it and uh, have a look a little bit further. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Thomas. Great, Annie. Thanks so much. Fantastic to speak as always. Thanks, Sam and Rebecca, for organising today. It's been been amazing and uh, thanks to all the speakers who have gone before now I wanted to agree with uh, Professor Freeland about uh, the future of humanity being tied up in space and the importance of everyone's perspectives and everyone's ways of seeing and I wanted to go back to the 18th century when the general English attitude toward mountains were not were seen not as places of beauty were regarded as indeed valuable, but instead, as Keith Thomas writes in Man and the Natural World, they were seen as full of horrors, dreadful fells, or hideous wastes. Mountains were not useful to humans when not bearing some beast, or grass at least, leaving them unpleasant and dangerous simply because they were not cultivated or productive. This perspective in England, Europe, was derived from how nature was seen in the 17th century. This being a view which greatly valued cultivation and domination over nature. Straight pastures with waving harvests, inline hedgerows, fertile fields, husbandry, and to maintain order over the land, which was seen as the only there to the benefit of humans. To achieve this order, wetlands were drained, fields of gore scrubbed out, and the relentless advance of cultivation continued. This highlighted how humans were becoming masters at asserting their dominance over nature and now in control of what was once considered wild. However, in the 19th century, we see the move away from pure cultivation as the valued system to instead an embracing of the wild people began to see nature as a spiritual experience and the mountains suddenly became places of the highest aesthetic admiration. They were now places one could go for spiritual renewal and the wilder the scene, the greater its power to inspire emotion. As Thomas writes again, they became a semi-religious devotion towards wild landscapes and it spread wildly throughout Europe with supporters such as Alexander von Humboldt. The mountains suddenly became valued and learned planting matrices began to be seen throughout the English gardens to reflect this natural wildness. Meadows and loose flowering planting pallets all evoked pictures towards emulating nature. In the meantime, Captain Cook, whose 250th birthday it was this week, landed on Australian shores, encountering a landscape born of deep time and ancient peoples. He brought a European approach towards seeing nature and the English declared terra nullius, this term being the first legal step towards conquering a new land. 
Thus, with this previously described European tradition of dominating nature, we know the story that unfolded for indigenous landscapes and peoples. Frontier wars were waged, fertile and managed fields of native grasses were compacted through the introduction of sheep. Fire stick farming and indigenous land management was stopped amongst many other tragedies of the time. However, what could have been if the colonizers had have formed a treaty and worked with indigenous peoples ways of connecting and seeing landscape along with European technology? What would our developed cities be like now? These points in time show how a continued way to see nature and landscapes is a view which evolves and changes over time. Often the seeing lens changes to suit our anthropocentric needs for the given purpose of the day. And it's now as we enter the new space era and industry 4.0, the relevant question is how do we see nature now and with what view we have, how will this scene inform of property rights and real estate on the moon and wider outer space? Firstly, let's propose that the term wild in regards to nature is defunct. The continued use of the word perpetuates the dichotomy between humans and the natural world. It keeps alive the humans versus nature narrative that nature is to be either be controlled or left alone as wild, which in effect means it's not economically viable to drain or grub out and develop. Secondly, our current scientific understanding of nature means we now know that what has previously been coined as wild is in fact a sophisticated system having found an equilibrium through deep time. And it's these ecosystems, biospheres and geochemistry that we should understand locally regionally and planetary before then sensitively making incisions into the landscape. In this regard, by moving away from a Cartesian relationship with nature that's based on infinite extraction, we can move towards an integrated relationship with nature, meaning our human presence across the solar system doesn't cause mass destruction to planetary landscapes. Unlike the current situation on Earth, where multiple human actions have aggregated and caused what we now coin as climate change. But is it possible to change the way we see nature, especially on Earth, let alone in space? Absolutely. And now we're in a great time of change where the inter-effectiveness of natural systems is evident as we remember indigenous wisdoms, further our sciences and embrace new technologies. Particularly, we see across areas of the earth, landscapes being given legal personhood to recognize all parts of the land which make up the whole, often with indigenous groups speaking for the land. This legal acknowledgement of nature as part of the dialogue is an evolved way for us to exist in the universe, stepping away from a capitalistic driven society towards one which puts value on relationships between entities. Along with this, it's the golden age of satellite constellations, which in recent years has given rise for the capacity to map the Earth's environmental systems in near real time, providing big nature data for underpinning government policy and built environment actions, which in effect give us the ability to have a dialogue with the landscape. 
We can now monitor the pulse of the Earth and watch natural indices rise or fall. The ability to map the Earth frequently means this planetary monitoring is a digital infrastructure for the human species. A ways forward, as seen by the Stockholm Resilience Centre's proposed planetary boundaries of 2009. By knowing the boundaries of a system locally and across the planet, we can then continue to inhabit the landscape, build our cities and move across outer space, ensuring our presence does not cause mass destruction. But it starts with how we see nature and the subsequent government structures that support our seeing. This influencing the built outcomes in the landscape and associated property rights and real estate interests. In regards to the moon, we now have the Artemis program, which will establish the lunar gateway, followed by a lunar village close to the poles. Again, this location is governed by the age-old reason for settlement, water. With frozen water at the poles of the moon, the Artemis base camp begins to set up a relationship of long-term human presence associated with in-situ resource utilisation of water and human development. This exploitation of resource is beneficial to our deep space exploration. It will provide rocket fuel for off-Earth launch, along with drinking water and inhabitation amenities such as air conditioning. However, do we know the wider interaffected systems of this water well enough to start extracting? Not yet, but scientists around the world, along with mining companies, are completing further research on this to ensure the payload mission stacks up commercially, which in turn deepens our collective understanding. Jumping back to Earth and taking long-term view, if we look at precedents of how settlements evolved in the cities nearby to water, we only need to look at Melbourne and the associated whole grid. Laid out in 1837, Melbourne's hodl grid was sited by the Yarra River at what was known as the Falls, a rocky outcrop where salt water met fresh water and from here evolved what we know as the city of Melbourne. The grid streets and property boundaries were overlaid on top of existing topography, environments and culture without adjusting to local natural systems. By utilising knowledge from European cities, many parcels of land were divided up into 200 by 100 metre blocks and over time, trees were felled, creeks were put into pipes and wetlands were drained. Meaning now 183 year, 83 years later, we have the metropolis of today with high-rise development driving the economy by climbing to the sky based on yield and lot price with no account of the pre-European existing natural system. In this way, the property market can drive demand for resource extraction, such as concrete, causing the continued degradation of our collective natural capital. Furthermore, we see the expansion of Melbourne's urban sprawl continually eating into the western grassland plains known as the growth corridors. Houses with no sense of place, street trees or European origin planted often without rising temperatures in mind and up to five metres of fill introduced into sites to ensure levels are achieved. This is driven by the need for housing and rolled out by the Victorian Planning Authority with developers buying up parcels of greenfield land subdividing and communities created by market demand and varying council requirements. Green policies are discussed, yet the built outcomes often do not meet policy details. They're more aligned with the plan of subdivision than benefiting existing natural systems that they may claim to do at policy level. Thus, another example of how our 
existing property rights and real estate demands that do not fit with the natural systems, but continue to roll out an 18th century view of nature. Back to the moon, the proposed settlement for Artemis program is planned based on a mix of small-scale prefabricated architecture along with 3D printed regoliths to combat deep space cosmic rays and local radiation. This method and scale is also proposed for Mars, perhaps akin to more traditional architecture buildings on Earth. Ones where the materiality of place informs the architectural vernacular and has low impact on the wider natural system. Yet in time, how do we plan for long-term human development on the moon and also beyond considering property real estates and interests will inevitably come? Back to the moon, the proposed settlement for the Artemis program is planned. We propose it goes back to losing the term wild and throwing away terra nullius. Instead, approaching an understanding of natural systems is key. Particularly to the moon, we have water, asteroid impacts, moon dust, temperature and topography, to name a few. How can we create a property and real estate framework not associated with an 18th and 20th century sense of ownership or domination of nature, but instead a 21st vision which integrates with and has stewardship of nature? Can real estate interests align with natural systems to ensure that their continued intactness of the system? Can property rights find the edges of natural systems and exist in flux to this instead of being rigid and fixed? With scientific understanding, we, ne we need the legal governance structures to allow property and real estate interests to evolve. However, they need to do so integrated and towards valuing natural systems. As per the proposed international law of ecocide, the mass destruction of nature needs to see we need legal governments to guide companies and CEOs to avoid systemic damage to nature across the universe. Will property in outer space more destruction? Will we define edges in space, particularly yield and ownership, without great understanding of the landscape? Or can we propose a model which is adaptive to a changing environmental system? A model which appreciates the relationships found in nature, nature with legal personhood, and part of the property rights decision-making process. To wrap up, as Keith Thomas makes clear in The Wild Welshman of Elizabethan Pembrokeshire, it was reported the rest call them the mountain men, perhaps alluding to a certain unruliness and having a law of their own. However, will our off-earth civilizations be seen similar or as having or as aspiring to push the human species forwards in the way we engage with the universe? Can property rights find new, inspiring, sophisticated nuanced and, dare say, beautiful ways for existing with the landscape. Thank you. You've been listening to the Space Junk podcast. And before we finish up, I wanted to give a shout out to Brit um, for being a new patron on Patreon. Patreon is where people can sponsor the production costs of this podcast and make it more possible for me to do. And I'd like to thank everyone who's done so. It's super awesome to have you on board and part of the team really, that is the Space Junk podcast. Um, if you do become a new sponsor on Patreon, particularly if you're using a different name to the one I might know you by, um, please feel free to send me a message and let me know so that I know. And, um, and if I haven't met you in person, please do send me an email and let me know what you're up to and how you got interested in the Space Junk podcast. I would love to hear from you. 
That is all from me. Um, feel free to get in contact, thespacedrunkpod at gmail.com and social media where I'm Annie Hanma. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.